The cause of this death was blunt force trauma to the head. The missing mother who was found dead died from blunt force trauma. It says the child died from blunt force trauma to the head. Amy's office also confirms she died of blunt force trauma. The medical examiner says the cause of death was blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Yeah, I am. Okay, that's good. Um, hello, and welcome to episode six of Blunt Force Trauma, the true crime podcast where we smoke weed and talk murder. I'm Jamie. I'm Mark. And we're married, in case you forgot. <laughs> Happily married. Um, <laughs> why the pause no, in I'm your just... laughter? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just thinking of something. What? What are you thinking of? What? What are you thinking of? <laughs> Uh-oh. <What? laughs> it seems like I caught you in something that you don't want to say. Uh, no. Then say it. I was just doing some weird thing with my tongue. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> this week, Mark's not smoking, surprisingly, um, but I am smoking a sativa concentrate from Concrete Jungle called Jamaican Lion, which apparently a Jamaican Lion tastes like like a, a minty grape that's been like rolled in dirt. All right. <laughs> you, make, like, you make this sound very... <laughs> there's like something earthy to it. I'm not selling it too well, but I do actually like it. No, you're not selling it very well. Well, they're not paying me or anything, so it's kind of all right, but um, I do like it, even though it tastes a little bit like dirt. Let me guess, it reminds you of something from your childhood. Why do you say that? Because everything reminds you of something from your childhood. (laughs) You you smell something and you're like, oh, this reminds me of my fifth grade classroom. (laughs) Like, like what? I have a very strong sense memory recall. Sorry about it. Um... Anyway, how would you say you're doing today, Marv? How's your Monday going? <sighs> you know, it's off to a rough start. Would you say you love Mondays? Who in their right mind loves Mondays? <laughs> well, um, who? You know who definitely isn't a big fan of Mondays? Who? Our subject of this week's case. One Brenda Spencer. Brenda. Want to know how I know? How you know? Well, I mean, you did the research, so it's not that hard to put two and two together there. Do you want to know how I know that she hates Mondays, though? Because everybody in America hates Mondays. I'm kind of trying to set up a line here, and you're not, like, going with it, so now I'm just going to say what I was going to say. Okay. Um, Upon being questioned in regards to her motive behind perpetrating a mass shooting at the Grover Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego... Brenda simply replies, I just hate Mondays. This just livens up the day. So. Yeah, she deserves to be locked away. Definitely a legitimate circumstance to kill people. Um, if that were the case, the entire population would have been wiped out by now, probably. So. Yeah. Um, also, I just want to give a disclaimer that while this shooting does take place at an elementary school, um, no children were killed here. Injured, unfortunately, but all the children who sustained injuries that day survived. So right off the bat, I just want to make that clear because the death of a child is like obviously a rough subject. So we the can death just, of anybody is a rough subject, but like you know, what a child. But here we are covering an entire podcast on it. But um, because there's sick people like us in the world that 
that enjoy this kind of stuff. Well, we're fascinated by it, let's say. But we can relax knowing at least that these children in this story survived, okay? All righty. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, first, I want to start by giving you some insight into, like, Brenda's life and family situation. And then we'll get into what happened on the day of the shooting, which was January 29th of 1979, when she was only 16 years old. Okay, so my sources for this episode are Murderpedia, the History Channel... Um, the San Diego Tribune, Once Upon a Crime, ThoughtNova.com, St. Mary's University Scholars.org, and NBCI.gov. Um, okay, so Brenda Spencer was born on April 3rd, 1962, in San Diego, California, to her parents, Wally and Dot Spencer. Um, she had two siblings, her brother Scott, who was six years older, and her sister Teresa, who was four years older than her. So she was the youngest of the three. Um, and just to give you a visual description, she had, like, long red hair parted down the middle, um, fair with freckles. And if an actress were to, like, play her in a film, it should be that girl who plays Max in Stranger Things. I think her name is Sadie Sink. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, she reminds me so much of her. They have, like, a very similar look, um, especially, like, compared to her character in particular. You know who else could play her? The girl that played Annie. Which is who? The little redhead girl. I'm pretty sure she wasn't really redhead, but she could. She played redhead girl. You've never even seen this girl. How do you know who could play her? Well, I'm just assuming. I'm just picturing anyway that has red hair. Well, you, you ain't picturing right, okay? Because my casting was supreme. You know what? <laughs> you know who else could play her? Who? Baby Bob. We are literally <laughs> done here because I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> But, <laughs> but but I'm trying to just get back to where we were. Um, um, and I didn't even smoke. Yeah, like I was <sighs> saying, uh, similar to the character of Max in Stranger Things, like a tomboy kind of character, Brenda was kind of similar. She wore like baggy clothes and regularly wore like a navy beanie, which she deemed her lucky hat. Um, and she was very much like a tomboy. Uh, she eventually attended Patrick Henry High School. And while she didn't necessarily, like, excel academically, she was actually pretty bright. Um, she loved to read and write poetry. And she was a very talented photographer. Um, she even won a competition that was put on by the Humane Society. <laughs> Stop. Um, her subjects were often animals, and she appeared to love them and even claimed she wanted to be a veterinarian when she was older, so... Contrary to our guy from last week, in regards to the McDonald triad, which, just to refresh your memory, it's a set of three behaviors that is theorized to predict the likelihood of someone becoming a murderer. Um, contrary to him, I suppose, loving animals and wanting to dedicate your career to like taking care of them is on the complete opposite end of someone who tortures or, or was it just a cover-up to abuse yeah. No, I don't think it ever was. I think she genuinely loved them. Um, okay. So, like, this particular behavior of the triad is not accounted for, and the triad being abusive animals, obsession with fire, and bedwetting. Um, it was later determined that she did have frontal lobe damage from a head injury that she sustained as a child. And so, many experts theorize that a traumatic brain injury, especially when suffered in, in the frontal lobe, sort of acts as a fourth variable behavior of the McDonald triad. Like, not necessarily saying that all who've endured a TBI... Um, are at risk of becoming a murderer or serial killer, but... Did you say UTI? TBI. Oh. Traumatic brain injury. Oh. 
Um, that in conjunction with any one of the three behaviors of the triad or like some sort of underlying psychological condition, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, in the frontal lobe in particular, because damage caused to the frontal systems of the brain can lead to impulsivity, aggression, poor decision-making, lack of control, and like an affinity for violence. So definitely the traits of your average murderer, I feel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it was actually during all of Brenda's pretrial testing and evaluations that this damage to the frontal lobe came to light. And we'll get into it again briefly later because like some of the opposing experts demolish Brenda's ultimate defense strategy in like a big way. Um, this injury was determined to be caused by a grand mal seizure that she suffered as a child. So a grand mal seizure is a rare and severe seizure that causes loss of consciousness and violent muscle contractions. Um, these seizures are serious and can lead to lifelong injuries to the brain, especially since more often than not they're caused by epilepsy, which is more of an ongoing condition that definitely requires medical attention. And as you'll come to see, Brenda's parents didn't necessarily make it a priority to seek treatment or anything for this. So it was kind of like blown off like nothing, it seems. So that's just interesting to think about and keep in mind in connection to her crime, which we'll obviously be getting into. Um, she was physically pretty tiny, only five foot one and 85 pounds. Um, but she excelled at many sports like softball, bowling, and soccer. Um, and golf, which that was her biggest talent of the four, golf. Um, and actually, all three of the Spencer children, Scott, Teresa, and Brenda, were all top-rated golf champions of the San Diego area. So, um, And Dot Spencer, Brenda's mom, she too was an avid golfer, and she actually did the bookkeeping for the Andy Williams Golf Tournament in San Diego. So a golf family, whatever that is. Um, Brenda's parents actually met when her father, Wally, was stationed in the Navy um, in San Diego. And he eventually went on to become an audiovisual technician for San Diego State University. Wow. Mark is an audiovisual technician. Connection. Connection. Um, friends of the family would describe Wally as quiet and reserved and like introverted, while Dot, on the other hand, was social and outgoing and more extroverted. So, I don't know, opposites attract, I guess. What about me? Which one do you think I am? Say them again. Introverted or extroverted? Like, which one of the two? Introverted. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe more of like an ambivert. No, you're an introvert. Okay, fine. I'll accept uh, it. I'm an introvert too. So. Yeah, you're also maybe an ambivert. I feel like we're both ambiverts. A mix of First both. of all, ambivert was not one of the two options yeah, you provided. Yeah, but it's like a combo of both. Are you just making up verts at this point? No, it's a real thing. Ambivert. It's a word. It's a combination of both introvert and extrovert. You know, the personalities. All right. Yeah. Um, anyway, so who knows whether or not their polar opposite personalities played a role here, but in 1972, when Brenda was 10 years old, her mother and father filed for divorce. Um, unfortunately, this became a bit messy, especially with their custody battle. Um, I mean, Brenda was 10 years old, her sister Teresa was 14, and her brother Scott was 16 at the time, so it's not like they were babies, but still formative years nonetheless. Um... And it was interesting because at this time, divorce was still pretty taboo, but it was especially unheard of that the father would be awarded full custody of the children upon the split. But that's actually what happens here in this case. Um, so both Teresa and Scott, Brenda's siblings, testified that they wanted to live with their father, like potentially because they were teenagers and there appeared to be like less structure and rules with their father, Wally. So 
it's reported that like the freedom of sorts was their motivation for wanting to live with their father full time. But Brenda, however, felt differently. She was closer with her mother, Dot. Um, and I use the word close pretty loosely because, as I said earlier, there were some abandonment issues at play. And when the judge ultimately rewards Wally with full custody in an effort to keep all three siblings together, the relationship that Brenda has with her mom slowly withers away to almost like nothing. Um, so her mother stays put in the family home and Wally purchased a home just blocks away on Lake Atlin Avenue in San Diego, um, directly across the street from Grover Cleveland Elementary School. So this is where Wally, Brenda, and her two siblings are residing. Follow? Follow. Um, and it was at this time that Brenda's overall demeanor started changing. Uh, she was previously described as a pleasant girl. No one really had anything negative to say about her. Um, but now she was sort of reclusive and quiet. She no longer played sports, and she definitely just, like, flew under the radar socially. Um, and as I said, the relationship that she had with her mother, who she was, quote, like, close to, it pretty much withered to nothing. Um, she went from weekly visits to seeing her mother once every few months. And this was mainly because her mother, Dot, just didn't really make it a priority to see her or her siblings for that matter. Um, but at this point, Brenda was a teenager, and so her sister was off to college and her brother was out of the house too. So that just left Wally and Brenda to be alone. Um, although even when the four of them shared a home together, both Brenda and her siblings would later testify that they didn't really have much of a relationship anyways. Um, the sisters weren't ever really close and didn't have that friendship energy where they felt like they could like bond and rely on each other. So Brenda was really like emotionally abandoned and lacked female perspective and like support in her life in that way, um, which is extra bad because she apparently had really debilitating premenstrual syndrome, PMS, um, and extremely symptomatic periods, meaning she suffered pretty badly from like cramps, backaches, headaches, and brain fog um, while on her menstrual cycle. So she was often bedridden from this and had to miss school and stuff. So like Imagine never having your mother or your sister or, like, a female presence to help you, like, navigate that. I don't know if you could imagine it, per se, but, like, it would be pretty isolating, I, I imagine. Um, and it was later reported that the interior of the home she shared with her father was, like, sparse with furniture and sort of littered with beer cans and stuff, like, presumably from her father, who was an alcoholic. Most of the time she lived in that house with him, so... There was that added layer, too. Um, though Brenda nor her siblings ever reported, like, abuse or anything at the hands of her father, I think there was just sort of a neglect for her developmental needs. You know what I'm saying? Um, he didn't completely abandon her like she felt like her mother did, but his attention was, like, specific and directed into things that maybe he felt like he could bond with her over, yeah. and that emotional aspect was lacking. Um like, for instance, something they used to do together on most weekends was go hiking and explore the mountains, often finding spots for target practice, which apparently Brenda had been shooting pellet guns since she was, like, a kid. So I don't know how I feel about that, considering what's to come, but um, that's cool. Uh, and interestingly enough, Brenda was apparently an expert shot. Like, she was really good at this. Um... One of Wally's friends, Tom Miner, recalls that Brenda was, quote, a crack shot and that he considered himself like an expert marksman, but felt that her skill set even surpassed his. So. And I find it kind of interesting that she's like above average at both golf and shooting, I guess, because I feel like those two things require a similar skill set, aim, death perception, like 
form, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know literally nothing about golf or shooting guns for that matter, but I think it makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. That's it. like am i making sense yeah you're making sense yeah okay yeah um also one of my sources a podcast called once upon a crime the host has a master's degree in criminal psychology and she actually raises an interesting theory that may explain some of the turmoil that brenda was grappling with at this time um brenda would later identify as a lesbian and so she wonders if she was coming to terms with this at that point as a teenager and like while going through her parents' divorce and the abandonment by her mother, like it probably played a role in her overall like demeanor and like inner thoughts. Um, she theorizes that this may have manifested as anger and made her feel like an outcast, which resulted in anxiety and depression, um, which would lend itself to the fact that Brenda isolated herself and stopped engaging in like community activities like sports and such. Um, she was more of a loner and didn't really have any friends anymore. Um, except for one friend in particular, and not the best one to have, a boy named Brent, who was actually three years younger than Brenda, making him only 13 at the time, which is a little weird when you hear what he's all about. But um, it's not clear how they really linked up. It wasn't like a romantic relationship at all, but they would like watch TV together, mostly police shows, and Brent would always talk about how he hated the cops and like called them pigs and stuff, and Brenda would also like catch on and start calling them that as well. Um, the two sometimes joked that they were snipers tasked with killing cops and would fantasize about doing just that. Um, it seems like Brent had some trouble with authority and that was starting to rub off on Brenda. Um, this could be because Brent's stepfather was a cop. So with that dynamic, like I could see how those feelings may begin to formulate, but I'm not sure of their relationship. So I can't attest to whether or not he was, like, intense or abusive or anything like that. I just know that he was a cop and Brent had issues with authority. So I'm sure that was, like, problematic. Um, Brent would admit that the two would drink whiskey together and smoke weed. um, And Brenda would go on to say that she was doing all sorts of drugs. Um, She was high on PCP and even tried to blame the crime, like, on that later on in the trial. But Brent actually denied any of that being true, so who knows. But either way, it's not looking great here. Um, By this point, Brenda was doing really poorly in school and was basically ignoring all of her academics. And so because she was failing out of her classes, she was transferred to Garfield High School, where they had special programs separate from the mainstream curriculum to help students get back on track. Um, Eventually, she did end up back at Patrick Henry High School, I'm just not sure exactly like when or how, but she did end up back there. Maybe she like finished the program or something. Um, And I do want to note that when authorities interviewed Brenda's mother after the incident, she claims that she wasn't even aware of the school transfer. So that just shows how far removed she was from her daughter's life. Like my mother would have certainly known if I sneezed, much less changed schools. So (laughs) yeah. Um, In the summer of 1978, Brenda and Brent were caught trespassing the campus of Cleveland Elementary School, which, again, was across the street from Brenda's house, Um, and they were charged for breaking in and shooting BB guns out of the windows. So things are escalating. Um, And by the fall of 1978, Brenda decides that she wants a rifle, and so she begins to nag her father Wally about it until he eventually buys one for her for Christmas that year. And it wasn't just any old rifle. Um, it was a Ruger semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle with a scope. 
Um, not to be confused with the official Red Rider Carbine Action 200-shot air rifle that was gifted to Ralphie Parker on Christmas morning. Um, if you know, you know. You'll shoot your eye out. You know what I'm talking about, Mark? Yeah, it's on 24 hours a day on Christmas Day. Yeah. Um, for those of you freaks who have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm referencing um, the movie A Christmas Story. Um, anyway, this Ruger semi-automatic was lightweight and accurate and easy to use, so the perfect gift for any depressed 16-year-old, you know. Um, so fast forward now to January of 1979, about a month later from when she was gifted this rifle. Um, at this point, Brenda's father, Wally, I guess, was trying to like turn his life around a bit. Um, he had tried to quit drinking and began taking college classes in the evening, so Brenda didn't really have any supervision at this point. Like He worked all day and then took these classes at night, so she was just alone a lot. Um, so on the evening of January 28th, 1979, it was a Sunday, um, Brenda asked her father for the keys to their van, and being that she was so rarely, like, in a good mood, it seemed like she was chipper and, like, had a plan of some sort, so he was like, yeah, here, and tossed them to her. Um, but just a few moments later, she came back into the house seemingly with, like, just a bundle of dirty clothes, uh, that she had left behind from one of their weekends in the mountains, like, in the car. Um, and at the time, he just let it go, but what he didn't realize was that that bundle of clothes was concealing a box of ammunition that she had just taken from the car. Um, so the next morning, Wally goes to wake Brenda up for school, but uh, she complains of cramps and a headache and claims that she has her period and is feeling sick. So her father gives her permission to stay home, and he heads out to work at around 7 a.m. Um, soon after he left, Brenda retrieved the 700 rounds of long-shelled 22 caliber bullets she had concealed in her bundle of clothes from the car and begins to load her rifle which held a 10-round box magazine that was rather easy to, like, reload. Um, she then dressed in a dark hooded sweatshirt, a pair of tan pants, uh, her wire-framed glasses that she needed for long distances, and her lucky navy beanie cap that she often wore and positioned herself at the front door of her house. Um, this front door, if you can imagine it, like, the top half of the door contained several glass panes, and the bottom half was solid. Um, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So Brenda used the butt end of the rifle to knock out the two lower panes, like shattering the glass, and proceeded to aim the loaded rifle directly at Grover Cleveland Elementary School across the street from her house. Um, and my best friend growing up also lived across the street from the elementary school that we went to, and so I can like imagine the distance between her and where the campus technically starts. It's really not that far in the grand scheme of things, especially when someone has the power reach of, like, a bullet. So she was just in prime positioning for what she wanted to do here. Um, and the elementary school had 300 students from kindergarten through to sixth grade and 13 teachers total, so a small school. Um, but at this point, it's 8.30 a.m., and the children are starting to approach the campus and walk up the driveway to the entry door when, bang, the first shot is fired. Um, nine-year-old Monica Seldig was walking up the driveway when she was struck on her left side and collapsed onto the ground about 20 feet from the entrance to the school. There were other children around at the time, and the shots continued to fire when Mary Clark, aged eight, and Greg Verner, also aged eight, were both shot in the abdomen and fell down on the sidewalk right in front of the driveway. Um, next up was eight-year-old Crystal Hardy. She fell to the ground, clutching her wrist in pain. Um, a bullet had actually entered and passed right through her wrist, leaving behind a literal hole, like, in her poor little arm, you know? 
Um, so shots were still firing, and at this point, uh, this next one like really gets me. I don't know why more so than the others, but um, seven-year-old Audrey Seitz was reportedly walking wobbly, like not in a straight line, appearing dazed and confused, clutching her elbow, which had just been hit by a bullet. And she was a bit closer in proximity to Brenda's house at the time, I guess, because she hadn't yet, like, gotten onto the campus. So, I don't know, just the thought of, like, this little girl barely standing and, like, confused and shocked, like, the innocence of not understanding what just happened to her, like, it just gets me. Like, I, I feel like I could see her, like, being like, whoa, you know? It's right. sad. Um, at this point, like, only a minute had gone by, and... Burton Rag, uh, the school principal, he hears these gunshots from his office and immediately springs into action. Uh, he's a former veteran who served in World War II, so he's like no stranger to the sound. Um, and he was 53 years old and a newcomer to Cleveland Elementary School. Uh, the previous principal had retired in the fall, and so he had just stepped up like only months prior taking his place. But from what I understand, he was like super well-liked and fair and everyone had nice things to say about him, so... Um, he ran out towards the front of the school where he saw the bodies like laying of the kids who have been shot. Um, and he yelled for the others to like duck and run for cover. And he himself was running toward Monica who he could see like bleeding out on the driveway. Um, and in an effort to scoop her up and bring her like inside the building for safety, Brenda had shot him directly through the chest, like near his heart. And he maintained consciousness for a bit, but he would later succumb to injuries and was the first of Brenda's victims that day. Um, so at this point, sixth grade teacher Daryl Burns tries his luck at rescuing Monica and begins to swiftly run toward her while screaming out for the secretary to call 911. Um, he luckily is able to grab her and run through the gate into the school building where bullets were literally flying through the windows, like swiping right by their heads. Like it was crazy. Um, he makes it through and is able to get Monica into the nurse's office for the time being without sustaining any injuries himself. Um, but in the meantime, it was just like complete chaos in the school. I mean, bullets were flying through the windows, like inside, outside. Nobody knew what was going on or where it was coming from at the time. Um, unsuspecting parents are still like pulling up to the drop-off zone and like getting their kids out to go to school, like completely unaware that they're releasing them directly into like a line of fire, which is really sad. They're like, bye, have a nice day. And this is all going on. They're just letting them out of the car. Um, it's just really sad, you know. Uh, 56 year old Mike Sukar, who is the school custodian, he is described as a gentle giant who is loved by the students and teachers. Um, he was a World War II and Korean War veteran, and so his rescue effort and things kicked in as well, um, and probably a little PTSD um, when he witnesses Burton Rags, the school principal, being shot down on the driveway. So he runs out with a blanket, assuming that Burton would be in shock if he was still even alive, um, and despite sixth grade teacher Daryl Burns yelling for him to stay put and like not run out there, he proceeds to do so and ends up taking a shot to the back just a few feet from um, Burton's body. Um, and he too would unfortunately hang on for a bit before eventually passing away, like as paramedics arrive. Imagine though, like making it through fucking World War II, Korea, and then you're taken out by some 16 year old sniper on like a seemingly normal residential street. Like, what a circumstance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Korea, World War II probably getting shot out a million times and you survived but then this like it's really sad 
Um, so shots are still firing, and remember she has 700 rounds on her, so she continues to hit 10-year-old Julie and 10-year-old Cam Miller, who recalls being in shock when a bullet ripped through his shoulder, just missing his heart. Um, a stray bullet had hit the fire alarm at this point, and so in addition to the chaos of, like, gunshots, now the fire alarm was going off, and so children who were arriving were fearful of entering the building because they thought it could be on fire, um, and assumed outside was the safer option, but it, like, wasn't, so, yeah. Um, finally, police officers Dennis Dorman and Robert Robb <laughs> arrived at the scene, um, Officer Rob was new to the force. He was 28 years old and had just graduated from the academy, and this was one of his first response calls. Um, hell of a call to get. Uh, and at this point, teachers have done their best to round up as many students as possible into the auditorium for safety, where there were like no windows or direct entry points from the outside. Um, and shots have seemingly ceased fire. Um, and this was only the second reported mass shooting in U.S. history. It was before Columbine and all the other school shootings that have unfortunately taken place and forced us to like create these lockdown procedures and such that are in effect today. But at this time, that was not a thing yet. So they were really unprepared for something like this. You know what I'm saying? Um, so as officers arrive and approach the bodies, along with paramedics, shots all of a sudden begin firing again, aimed toward the ambulance. Um, so Officer Robert Robb, who was luckily wearing a bulletproof vest, uh, he takes a shot through the chest, but it ricochets off the vest and hits into the right side of his neck. Um, although injured, he luckily survived his injuries. Um, and at this point, 30 patrol units, 100 officers, and 20 members of the SWAT team are called into action and arrive at the scene. Um, the shooting had ended, like no shots had been fired for some time. And strategically, actually, police had intercepted a garbage truck that was en route to that roadway. And they used the truck to, like, block Brenda's vantage point, which they didn't know it was Brenda at the time, but, like, where the shots were coming from, they realized. And they were able to block it off with this garbage truck. So any shots she was firing were, like, ricocheting backwards and not going forward towards the school anymore. Um, but the shots had ceased fire, so... Um, at this point, a reporter from the San Diego Union Tribune was on duty that day at the police station and happened to overhear what was going on at the school. And so he called into his boss and began like recruiting other journalists to call the neighboring homes of the elementary school in hopes of like getting some sort of inside scoop into what happened, like maybe a witness or something. Um, ideally, they wanted to talk to a witness, but they got more than they bargained for when Steve Wagon calls 6356 Lake Atlin Ave at random in an attempt to get a firsthand account of what happened. Um, when 16-year-old Brenda answers, she seems chipper and normal as if it were any old day. Um, and the reporter asked if she knew anything about what had taken place just a half hour earlier, and she responded by saying, Why, yes, I saw the whole thing. The shots came from address 6356 Lake Atlin. And the reporter, like, paused for a moment and then asked, isn't that your residence? To which she replied, quote, well, sure, who do you think did it? And then, click, she hangs up. Wow, that's creepy. Um, so she catches wind of the news reporters and police outside of her home, uh, but she stays inside. And at this point, reporters call back to, like, continue speaking with her while simultaneously, like, calling the police, letting them know that they kind of have the perpetrator on the phone. Um, and this is where she explains that she did this because she hates Mondays and just wanted to liven up the day. 
Um, doesn't everyone hate Mondays? She said, like, yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm not shooting people over it. Right. Um, she goes on to say, quote, I got that pig, uh, presumably talking about Robert Rob, and hangs up the phone once again, um, stating that she's got to go shoot some more pigs. So, yeah, but she didn't end up shooting again. She just said that. Um, well, why are you shooting little kids for? Like, what does that got to do with anything? Exactly. Like, I don't know really what her motive was. Like, if you wanted to go shoot pigs, then go do something else that's going to attract the pigs to you. <laughs> don't go shoot. I'm not going to keep calling them pigs. Don't the go cops. shoot random little fucking kids. Yeah. Um, but also, like, they had said, like, forensic analysts and stuff, like, she was, quote, a crack shot. And so if she wanted to kill those kids, she absolutely could have. But she chose to shoot them in specific places that weren't, like, deadly and just, like, injured them. And she knew that. Like, she could have absolutely. She should have done it at the beginning. She should have, you said? She shouldn't have. Should not have. Yeah, no. She shouldn't have done anything. But I'm just saying, like, it's odd to even involve them if you knew exactly how to kill them, but you didn't. Like, what's the point of even shooting them? What's the point of doing this at all? You're right. But I don't understand the psychology behind it. Like, there's there's millions of other things that if your target was the police... You could have done to, like, get them. Yeah, because this one seems like it's a long journey for the police to, like, get to you. You didn't need to go and shoot up an elementary school. Yeah, that's why I don't think her motive was really, like, pigs in particular. I think she got this whole, like, notion of that from hanging out with this Brent character who called cops pigs all the time. Right, but, uh, you know, like, not Um, saying I ever would, but if, you know, if I wanted to liven up my Monday, (laughs) my first thought's not like, hey, let me go shoot up an elementary school. Well, no shit, because you're somewhat normal and she clearly is not <laughs> you know yeah um so at this point her parents are notified of this and they are actually interviewing wally like a few blocks away um like asking him questions about his daughter and stuff um and they call the mother to let her know that like now does wally know why they're asking him these questions yeah like they notified him they told him what just took place so uh, he knows what okay. happened he's like you know, um, cooperating with the police and they called the mother to let her know what had taken place. And her response was, well, I'm in the middle of doing, you know, the bookkeeping for this golf tournament. So I can't really do anything about it right now. Like what? Like you drop whatever you're doing and you go (laughs) to either where your daughter is or the police station or what have you, but you're not like, I'll see you later about it. Your daughter just committed first degree murder and she's 16. Like, Get it together, lady. Like, she definitely... Priorities. Yeah, priorities were askew. Like, they said she was pleasant and stuff, but there was some sort of whoop disconnect to, like... Well, my daughter just shot her elementary school, but I gotta stay here and do the bookie before this golf tournament. Yeah, I don't know. Seems really important. Um, So, police and hostage negotiators have, like, surrounded the house at this point and are in contact with Brenda through a megaphone because she had left the phone off the hook like after she hung up on the reporter that last time. Um, so that was really the only way they could communicate with her until she eventually puts the phone back on the hook to speak with police. Um, these were her demands. She demands McDonald's, and she demands to be taken out in handcuffs. <laughs> like she apparently wanted that to happen. Probably because of this whole fantasy like these cop shows she watched with brent and that fantasy they created about like shooting a cop like she's fantasizing about being taken away in handcuffs like looking like an infamous i don't know celebrity of sorts but let me eat my mcdonald's first 
let me eat my McDonald's first. Like, same. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so McDonald's and handcuffs, please. That's what she wants. Um, you know you know what makes more sense? It's not shooting up in elementary school. You can get all the McDonald's you want. Yeah, you're still hung up on that. Um, but, okay, so after six hours of a standoff with police... Six hours of being in that house demanding McDonald's and handcuffs. But kind of sad that you had a six-hour stand-up with a 16-year-old. Continue. I mean, she had just like shot off 700 rounds of ammunition. I guess they have no idea what else she has behind that door. I mean, she has 16. I get it, but six-hour standoff. Um, she refused to come outside, but she was finally apprehended around 3 p.m. after slowly walking outside with her rifle and placing it on the driveway. But then police were like, go back inside and get your ammunition and bring it all outside. Like, what? You, no, you got her. Right. Go in and get the shit. Like, what if she had something set? I don't know. Maybe they thought she had something set up in there, like a booby trap. I don't know, but they made her go back inside and get the ammunition and place that on the driveway as well before they placed her in handcuffs and took her away as she wanted. And it wasn't like they were giving in to her, like, demand, like, she had to be handcuffed. That's just how it is. Um, but, yeah, so in total, after shooting off 700 rounds, Brenda had killed two adults and injured eight children in addition to the injuries sustained by Officer Rob. Um, so... It was tossed back and forth whether Brenda would be charged as, like, an adult or a juvenile. Um, But it was ultimately determined that due to the grave depravity of the situation, like, 700 rounds and multiple people dead, kids injured, um, she was eligible to be tried as an adult. Um, But had she been over 18 at the time of the shooting, she would have been put up for the death penalty, actually. So she just... Did they charge her premeditative? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... Her defense lawyers, remember I told you she was diagnosed with, like, epilepsy? Or they said yeah. that the grand mal seizure was because of epilepsy, and then her parents didn't really do anything to seek medical attention for it. Right. So this caused issues to her frontal lobe. So her defense team, like, their whole strategy was to present the fact that Brenda was, like, so severely messed up from an injury to her frontal lobe, and that epilepsy played a huge role in, like, changing her demeanor, and that she wasn't really in control that day in making these decisions because of her injuries. And they had spent like however long laying out this whole defense, planning it, getting witnesses. But then the, the epileptic community like had such a strong outreach against this when they like caught wind of what her defense was. They like wrote letters, they made it a big deal. It was across like the news like that epilepsy is not does not equal murder. Like that Tons of people are diagnosed with epilepsy. They're not murderers and that it can't be like an excuse. And eventually when it was brought, like brought in pre-trial, it was eventually like scrubbed, like they could not use it. So they lost that and then didn't really have anything besides like some mitigating factors of like her life circumstances, I guess. Um, On April 4th, 1980, the day after her 18th birthday, after going through the proceedings of pleading guilty eventually to two counts of first-degree murder, um, the other circumstances being dropped due to the plea, I guess, uh, she was sentenced to 25 years to life and is currently serving time at the California Institute for Women in Chino, California. Um, She's still alive? She's alive, and she's been up for parole and denied like three or four times now. And each time... How old is she now? She was born in 1962, so... So she'll be 60 this year. Yeah. 
Um, so, yeah, she was up for parole a couple times, but she was denied. Um, each time, though, she claimed something new and, like, bogus. Uh, she, the first time, all of a sudden, pulled out that her dad was sexually abusive um, and came with, like, a slew of stories to, like, back that up. But it had never been brought up until this point, so they didn't really see it as being true. Right. So they denied her parole. Um, but it is a little strange because... There's like articles and reports of like what the structure of her household was like when she lived with her dad. And it was a three bedroom household and there were three siblings and the father. And so the way the rooms were set up, like the older brother had a room, the older sister had a room. And then it seems like Brenda shared a room with her father, but they didn't sleep in the same bed. Um, some articles like assumed that's what happened, but it was never like confirmed by either party. Like, the father did say they shared a room, but that they slept in separate beds. And that was just because of the circumstances of their living situation. But when the older siblings left, like, she moved into their room and no longer stayed with the father. So, I don't know. So, I'm not understanding why the dad wouldn't have his own room, the older brother would have his own room, and then the two sisters would share a room. Right, or at least like the dad and the brother share a room. Like it's really weird that the youngest the father and the youngest daughter share a room. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That is strange. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of the claims she had made as to why she, you know, should be paroled because she wasn't in her right mind due to the abuse of her father sexually and everything else. So denied and then the next time she said that while she committed the crime she was high on pcp and tons of drugs and drunk and everything and while they did find like um a half empty bottle of whiskey in the house afterwards um they tested her of course for all these drugs and it came back clean so i don't know how you think you're gonna get off on that when they have the records still so that was denied um, and I think the third time she claimed that she was having a seizure at the time of the shootings. And so she was not in control <laughs> of her hands to shoot the gun. And so, <laughs> yep. And so she had the seizure and that made her pick up the gun and then load it and then break the front door and then aim it and then shoot all the people like all while she's having a crazy muscle spasm seizure, which she could technically be unconscious for because she's had a grand mal seizure in the past. Um, so she was denied once again. So, yeah, she is still yeah, locked because up. because of that stupid-ass excuse you just tried to play. Yeah. I was having a seizure, but I just shot up eight children and two adults and shot a cop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's what? Like a, a very controlled seizure, girl. Um, that has to be the most... Don't say most dumbest again. No, not the most dumbest. That has to be the most controlled seizure I've ever heard of in my entire life. Yeah. And I've seen people have seizures. But this chick pulled up a gun, shot 700 rounds, all while having a seizure. Right. It makes sense. That's impressive. It makes a lot of sense, I think. I mean, personally. I could probably shoot a gun while having a seizure. Right? Yeah. Shit. Then she definitely is a crack shot if that's the fucking case. (laughs) I don't know. This is what her reasoning was. Fuck. I, I can't even hold a camera still while taking a picture. Oh, I, I know. I'm very well aware of that. If I take a picture, it literally looks like there's an earthquake happening. Yeah, as we I'm don't let Mark photo. take the picture. We call him McShake's uh, 
we don't let them take the photos. All of them are blurry or like, yeah, not good. Um, but also, um, I just want to say that this case inspired a song by the Boomtown Rats. Um, I don't really know who they are, but they had a major hit um, inspired by this case, a song titled I Don't Like Mondays, um, and it spent four weeks on the UK's number one spot. Um, it was also popular in the US, though, but local radio stations in San Diego refused to air it for like years after the shooting because they felt like it was insensitive, which I think it is. Well, 100%. Um, Especially if you go around telling people that your inspiration for this song was a girl that shot up in elementary school. Yeah. Imagine that song being released today. Oh, it wouldn't be. Right. Although, you know that song, Pumped Up Kicks? Well, don't, don't make me sing it. I'm not going to. All the other kids with the pumped up kicks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That song's about like a school shooting, technically. Everybody's like singing it like, la, 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 better run, better run. But the, the words are literally like, better run faster than the bullet or something like that. And they came out and said that it was about a school shooting. And that song came out and was aired. Um, well, what school shooting though? I don't know if it was one in particular, but just like metaphorically speaking about like school shootings in general. So yeah, that is the story of Brenda Spencer and the I Hate Monday murders. What did you think? Um, <laughs> she's fucking lunatic. Yeah. Um, I mean, for her, I hope that you know the first claim of her dad sexually abusing her is not true. I don't think it is, because none uh, of her siblings... But I mean, the that. situation, that the the sleeping situation doesn't totally like make sense to me. It doesn't sit well with me, but she, nor any of her siblings, up until this point when she wanted parole, like nobody had ever made a claim that it could have been sexual abuse. Right. And then the second claim was, I was on PCP. You're 16 years old. I mean, she was doing a lot of shit a 16-year-old shouldn't be doing, but whether or not she was on PCP, it was determined she wasn't because they tested her blood and everything now my question up. to you is that kid brent 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 uh was he ever spoken about again or yeah they questioned him and bring him in as a witness and everything like that and he attests to like her behaviors and what they would talk about and how you introduced her to shooting up cops well calling them pigs and everything but she already was like very well versed with a rifle or a gun or whatever she was shooting like pellet guns since she was a kid with her dad and she was a crack shot, as we keep saying. Oh. I'd never heard about that until now. So the word crack shot, I don't know. But anyhow, let's lighten things up a bit. Um, it's Mark's turn to have pulled stories this week. so My week. Sorry in advance. Uh, I'm also going <laughs> to say sorry in advance that none of these stories have anything to do with poop. <laughs> uh, I know that's been a recent trend on this podcast, but the uh, first of six episodes to not this talk about week poop. we are not talking about poop or shit or anything. Uh, no, okay. The first story I pulled is in regards to a Taiwanese teacher uses adult video platform Pornhub to teach mathematics. <laughs> what do you mean? Video platform Pornhub is normally associated with adult entertainment, but a Taiwanese teacher decided to go f- against the flow. And use the platform to offer mathematics lessons instead. What? The 34-year-old identified as Chang Su. I believe that's how you say his name. Chang Su. Chang Su. Okay. Oh, it's a he? Yeah. Has a master's degree in the subject and has been teaching online and in Taiwanese schools for 15 years. 
He also lectured on YouTube before developing an online course with its own dedicated URL last year. Chang also started to spread his numeric gossip on Pornhub last year. Numeric gossip? As he wanted more people to view them. Numeric gossip. Since very few people teach math on adult (laughs) video platforms, and since there are so many people who watch videos on them, I thought that if I uploaded my videos there, a lot of people would see them, he was quoted as saying. So far, Chang's plan has worked well. Has it worked well because he got publicity and then people looked it up? Or are people like sitting there like, they're like, all right. Regardless how it's worked well, he's <laughs> he has garnered uh, 1.6 million <laughs> times, oh my God. million views. That's ridiculous. And it directs business to his more profitable online course. Many students who need a teacher who can teach math know me through Pornhub. And some of them buy my course, he said. To date, his online course has pulled in 7.5 new Taiwan dollars. How old are these ki- kids, students? No whatever. idea. I no idea. Because that's what I want to know next. Like, is he? He's like a college professor, or what? Yes. Like, it's not like he's like in high school. No, he's being been like, teaching. Catch me on porn he's up. been teaching 15 years. He's 34 years old. No. I'm saying the age of the students he's teaching. I have no idea. That is not that is not um I'm gonna assume that he's in college. Like he's teaching college students. But he has pulled in seven point five new Taiwan dollars, which is roughly about like five hundred thirty three thousand no, no, I'm sorry, two hundred and fifty four like thousand American dollars. Wow. Um per year. He should go to OnlyFans next. Which he uses to pay his bills and provide a decent Wait, salary to his employees. Does he wear like lingerie and teach this math? No, class? I don't know. I, I just... don't. I don't know. <laughs> we should look into it. He is now a verified Pornhub member, <laughs> and the comments beneath his videos are mostly wholesome and welcoming. So that's how that. That's how that article guy. has ended. What um, a guy. Um, the next one made me laugh pretty pretty hard. Stop. Um, Talking like that. Like what? The next one made me laugh um, pretty hard. Um, I found this one, I don't know, funny, I guess you could say. But this um, one's going to make this, you guys laugh. Um, I, prom- you I promise you. Story. Florida men. <laughs> you can't even say it. Uh, Florida men, one dressed in bull onesie. <laughs> bull? Bull. Okay. Attempted to burn down house with ragu sauce. Police say. <laughs> Two Florida men were caught with their hands in a pasta jar. <laughs> uh, oh my god. Two Florida balls. men. Two Florida men were caught with their hands in the pasta jar after they used ragu sauce to try and burn down a home they robbed last week. Were they on PCP? Derek Irving, 36, and John Silva, 28, were arrested March 13th. March 13th, after allegedly breaking into a home in D-Land and stealing a flat screen TV and an air conditioning wall unit, the man whose home was being robbed received an alert on his phone from his residence security system, informing him of motion being detected in the house. A towel was placed over the camera, which gave him a clue that something was not right, and he immediately called the police. When police arrived at the home, they saw a red SUV trying to flee the residence. 
The victim told WKMC-TV that Irving was donning a bull onesie. <laughs> a deputy said there was an air conditioning unit, a vacuum television heater, a marijuana grinder, and an empty jar of ragu sauce inside the vehicle. Why are you stealing a marijuana grinder? Deputies found the burning pot of ragu sauce in a washcloth near the stove's burner, which appeared to be an attempt to start a fire. He was trying to make it look like I left the stove on, but who gets up at 2 a.m. and fixes <laughs> Skeddy? <laughs> the victim told WKMC-TV, Silva and Irving were both charged with unarmed burglary, grand theft, and arson. <laughs> For lighting the house on fire with ragu sauce, making Skeddies. Who makes Skeddies at 2 a.m.? <laughs> The last one, it was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time. Before Mark pulled up an article pertaining to... Give me a guess. Uh, What? Sea otters. Oh, yep. Marv loves sea otters. Um, It was only a matter of time, I guess. Watch out. (laughs) An otter gang is roving the streets waiting to strike. (laughs) Is that the title of the article? Yep. Oh, my God. Yes, you heard that right. Otters are generally lovable and playful creatures. But it seems like one group of otters is fed up and striking out. (laughs) And we guess, given the state of the world, we can't blame them. Boing Boing first first shared news of this Alaskan otter gang. Who's Boing Boing? I guess it's a... I don't know. I guess it's a... Like a magazine or something. I don't know. Oh, I thought it was like a person. <laughs> boing Boing first shared news of this Alaskan otter gang, which has orchestrated three separate attacks in September alone. <laughs> They've orchestrated attacks? These otters? Yeah. These attacks seem to have extended over a couple of years now. The first reported otter gang attack dates back to 2019. In these cases, the otters attacked dogs, unfortunately. There always seems to have been four or five otters involved in all the incidents. Considering the rarity of this behavior in otters and the fact that our first reported attack was in 2019 and has happened several times since then, this is very likely one group that has stayed together for a while or that come together frequently over a period of time. These otters are also proving hard to catch given their ability to stay on the move using interconnected waterways. Although a gang of angry otters certainly paints a picture, we're rooting for otter, man, and dog to find happy endings. <laughs> Battle notes he hopes to evaluate the otters when researchers can finally catch up to them. We're crossing our fingers there's an easy way to get this otter gang to put there in their claws. Why are they acting like it's like the blood of the crypts or something? They're just a bunch of otters. Don't underestimate the otters. Oh, God. Um, those were good, Marv. So thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll be back next Wednesday. And yippee ki yay, motherfuckers! No, this is gonna be a thing. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>